Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Our guest today is Jocelyn Segovia. Jocelyn is an experienced language access specialist with expertise in facilitating multilingual and multicultural communication through community-centered practices and innovation. She is passionate about the advancement of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. She has provided language services in fields including education, public service, government, tech companies, and the entertainment industry. The link to Jocelyn's LinkedIn profile is in the show notes. So welcome, Jocelyn. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know that people are going to be really excited to hear about your career path because you've gone out of academia and into something very, very specific that I think um, most people either don't realize is a career or once they realize that it's a career would be like, I can do that. And I really want you to talk about how you got prepared for doing this unique thing that you do. Um, So I would love it if you could talk a little bit about how you got into linguistics. Um, I, from your background, you didn't start as a linguist, right? You started in film. I did. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for being here. And yes, you're right. Um, my BA was in uh, filmmaking, so I did do film for about six years before I got into um, into linguistics. And did you take any linguistics classes during your undergrad at all? Like, did you even know what linguistics was? I did not. I had no idea what linguistics was. As, as many people <laughs> do not. That, that seems to be a fairly common refrain. Um, and was there a gap between your, your BA and entering the linguistics program? There was. I actually um, left my film career because... As a filmmaker, I was doing a lot of freelancing, and I was looking for something a little bit more financially stable, and I actually was a flight attendant for five years for Delta Airlines, and from there, I, yeah, I left and um, and joined the linguistics program. Okay, so that's a really interesting series of transitions. So from film to flight attendant, which must have been very glamorous and exciting, and what what made you choose linguistics? I mean, out of all the things that you could have chosen, what, what kind of got you into that? So I want to backtrack a little bit, and I yeah. just want to say that my very first degree, I started doing uh, marketing and advertising. So my mm-hmm. first professional job, I had an internship for um, a local um, advertising agency. And through that, I actually discovered that what I liked was filmmaking. I didn't know filmmaking was a degree. So then I, you know, I switched and got my BA in um, in filmmaking. I, I am very curious about what um, got you out of being a flight attendant and into linguistics. Was there a, like an inciting event there or, or <laughs> like what happened? <laughs> There was. Um, so I was liking uh, being a flight attendant, and I was never sure if I wanted that to be my career forever. I, you know, I was just uh, enjoying it and, and doing my job. But when I was there, I actually had an injury, and I couldn't continue to do my job because um, I know we don't think that about flight attendants, but it's actually very physical because you have to lift a lot of mm-hmm. overhead bins and things like that. So I couldn't do that anymore. So I had to leave. And I was at a very, very stressful point in my life because I could have gone back to filmmaking, but my job as a filmmaker was also very physical. So I was in a 
in a position where I couldn't do anything of what I knew that I wanted mm -hmm. to do. So I try to focus on what can I do and what I like to do. So I questioned myself and I kind of, you know, did the list and I really realized that um, I needed a new career. And so going back to school was a good option. But whenever I try to figure out what I liked about my job was that as a flight attendant, and I mean, really throughout my whole life, I've really enjoyed um, I'm bilingual, I speak Spanish, and I've really enjoyed uh, helping people. I really loved it when there was someone with a language barrier in, um, as one of the passengers, and um, they asked for help, and I was able to help, you know, especially if they spoke Spanish. Um, I tried to help, so then I thought maybe I could go into interpreting. So really that's when I, I went to, um, I'm in New Mexico, so I went to the University of New Mexico. They did not have an interpreting program. They only had um, ASL, and mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. So then um, I thought linguistics is maybe the closest thing. So I enrolled and I fell in love, and here I am. <laughs> Wow. Oh, that's so interesting. I One of the other folks that I talked to got into linguistics via translation, which is close, but not exactly the same thing. Um, so, wow, that that's a really, I, I want to almost say that's like a sideways way to get into linguistics. I think, yeah. It, it, yeah, it gives you a totally different perspective on the, the utility of a linguistics degree. It really does. And I think it, it did something for me where I went into linguistics knowing that I wanted a new career and I needed a job. So since day one, I've been exploring, which is how I met you. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. I went to the first ACE, LCL and things like that, because I've been searching for a job. That's been my end goal. This yeah. whole time. So when you, when you went into the program, did you have any thoughts of staying in academia or was it really more about like, I'm going to get this degree and then I'll, I will get a job doing something else? Um, I did think about it uh, when I was exploring. I just, I didn't know. First of all, I had no idea what you could do with linguistics. I just knew that I loved it. Um, so when I realized that there's not very, a lot of known paths that a linguist can take, I of course thought, well, what if I stay in academia and, you know, some, something I really enjoyed from the degree was research. So I thought I could mm -hmm. conduct my own research. So I did consider it. It's just, I know now things that I want in my job and, and they weren't part of academia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, where, could you talk about some of those very specific things that academia did not offer you? So I think something very important is that I never, I have never really felt a passion for teaching mm -hmm. at an academic level. I have felt um, I'm always drawn to children. So I, I, one of the things that I consider, consider is doing something um, for, you know, children education or something like that, but not really um, a university setting. So I, I just realized I, I want to do something that I'm passionate about and I really wasn't about uh, teaching, I was more about research. So I realized I could just look for something else. Mm -hmm. Some of the other, when, when people have talked about um, reasons that academia didn't seem like a good fit, other things have come up as well, like flexibility, um, where you want to live, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the 
schedule of the year and the pressures that are involved in in being an academic, which is very, very different from when you have a real job. Did any of those things play into your decision as well? Not those in particular, but I really liked, what I liked about academia was to have the data to conduct research, but then something that I really like to do is to apply it mm. outside. Mm-hmm. I want to, I think a lot of um, the research that we do is not really translated into, um, you know, simple terms so that it can be helpful to other communities. And I know that's something that a lot of um, academics want. And so I'm, I found that my place is kind of finding that, being that bridge to bring it to the community and, you know, using mm-hmm. that research. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did you, um, did you ever feel like your, your goals in, in that way, wanting to really apply linguistics, was that something that was supported by your department or um, how did they feel about that? Yeah, so um, I love my department. I love the faculty in that department. And I think I I approached everyone. Everyone knew, um, I mean, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but everyone knew that I didn't want to stay in academia. And I found that there were they were very supportive and of course Mm -hmm. there's uh limitations and i know you've talked about this in other episodes where it's not necessarily that they don't want to help you is that they're they've only known academia Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. of uh, people in academia so i really did feel very supported in the way that they thought they could support me they they i felt open i felt safe about talking one of the the ways that for example one of my faculty members was very very supportive. Um, they have a language acquisition lab at UNM, the program where I went, and uh, she contacted me um, for an opportunity because, and she specifically said, because you're interested in tech and filmmaking and voice, she knew all of it. <laughs> she said, we just um, were awarded this grant and we think that you could maybe make um a training module. They wanted to make a training module that featured um, the languages that they work with, Spanish, mm-hmm. Navajo, and ASL, and that maybe I could incorporate those languages and make um, a training module uh, for to challenge linguistic bias. Wow. So that's one of the projects that I've heavily featured in my resume because it was just so helpful that they did that for me. So yes, everyone was very supportive and, you know, they just helped me in any way they could. Wow. That's an amazing opportunity. And so, I mean, that's the way departments should be supportive, right? Like there's an opportunity and they think, oh, you could be a good match for this. When, when you were doing that, did you have to take any additional training to like, did you have to learn coding or were there other skills that you needed to acquire to, to actually make it work? Um, no, because, I mean, of course, there's always things that could have helped me more. I'm sure coding would have been very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they already had a collaboration going on with the department at the university that makes training modules. Mm-hmm. So my job was to be the liaison between the uh-huh. the lab and them and then also create the content. And because I've made 
you know, videos before, and I also had my marketing um, uh, background, I was able to create, um, like, conduct the research, gather the data, survey, focus groups, whatever I had to do. And then I made a storyboard. So then it was very easy to give to the animation department. We decided to do to do an animated module instead of like oh. a live footage. Uh -huh. uh, I thought it would be more engaging. So then, you know, it was just very easy to communicate that with the background that I already had um, and then guide the, the training module from that oh. from then. Okay, that's so interesting. Uh, the reason I mentioned that is because people who would who might be interested in doing similar projects to that are always very worried that they they're not qualified because they don't have coding skills but it sounds like in in your case anyway it wasn't a necessity it might have helped but you didn't need it because there were already people there who were doing it so it's a mm -hmm. it's a constant refrain right when you want to apply for a job and you don't have every single qualification that's on there you might think well I shouldn't even try because I don't tick every box, but that's not necessarily the case. You know, there, there might be an opportunity. You, you might lack one skill, but the rest of them are, are plenty good enough for you to actually get the job done. It sounds like that was certainly the case for you. It was. And, and that's one of the things that I really want to stress the most for students out there. If someone offers you the opportunity, you will have doubts, you know, because maybe you haven't done that work but if you're being offered the opportunity and you want to do it go for it mm -hmm. I think that is the, the best thing that you can do I mean yeah we're going to make mistakes but someone thinks that you can do the work and I think that it just doesn't get better than that someone that believes that you can do the job yeah that's fantastic wow that that sounds super interesting um is the training that you created is it something that they use all the time now is it like part of the the official um program that they have yes they're doing a lot of uh, very interesting stuff um they are using it so um how do i put this so they are using it um someone else took over the position where I was because the thing is that I was graduating so I had to finish um, turn in the content and do as much as I could before I graduated but once I graduated someone else took over and they're great I think it's two two people doing that job right now but what they're doing is they have an internship going on for I believe it's undergrad students and they try to show them um, teach them about all sorts of linguistic things uh, and one of those things is to give workshops about implicit bias um, mm -hmm. to help um, educators or students, you know, just teach everyone about bias. And from what I've heard is these workshops end with the training or they try to incorporate the training. So they are teaching about this, like what my module did. But then also I think what something that's very valuable is that they're getting feedback on what works and what doesn't because eventually, mm -hmm. hopefully the training can be better. So it is being used right now. Um, one of the issues that I had when I was creating it is that we didn't have a very defined audience. I think it could have been a little better if it was more targeted. Um, so right now it's just very broadly, you know, for anyone who wants to learn. And the only thing that we knew is that it was gonna be for people who are not linguists. So the language had to be accessible. Right, right. Yeah, that's always a challenge, isn't it? When you're coming out of an academic program and you're trying to convey linguistic concepts to non-linguists, it's it's like, 
having to translate everything in your head as you're talking. And honestly, the other way around too, um, coming from, you know, the, the marketing background that I have and filmmaking and all that, trying to explain what appealing content is to people in academia who want to present all the statistics, all this research mm -hmm. and, and sources. And, you know, for me trying to explain, I, I know this, this is important, but you're not going to keep someone watching a video for free. You know, they're not getting anything out of it other than wanting to learn uh, with very heavy language. So it goes both ways. I think trying to explain that it can be difficult. I have had the, I mean, a lot of what we've done with the um, linguistics career launch has been that also is figuring out how to talk to um, linguistics departments and faculty and encourage them to look outside of the way they normally do research and present things and, and you know, understand how things work in the non-academic world. Um, that it's not better or worse, it's just different. And it's a different way of communicating things. And sometimes there's a lot of resistance to that, but um, it, it's something I think that, that has to happen if we're going to make these two worlds come closer together and acknowledge that having these amazing careers outside of academia are actually um, worth having, just as valid as having anything in, in academia. Yes, it is. And, and I think you become, um, and this is inspired, I want to say, by Greg Bennett. I heard one of his talks, uh -huh. I think, for the for the career launch, that he said that one of the most valuable skills, I'm paraphrasing, but it was to be able to communicate linguistic concepts to people who don't know linguistics. And I remember I really, I really took that to heart, and we haven't talked about it, but whenever I was doing my work for the for a TV show um, that was very very valuable and I think I was able to do my job because of that because I was trying to explain it in non-linguistic terms mm -hmm. um, so that's a very valuable skill I think that we can work on when we're in school yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely um, so getting back to your your journey so you did this amazing project and then you graduated. So what was your um, plan? Did you have a plan when you graduated? Like, did you know what you were going to do next? <laughs> uh, my plan was simply to get a job. And at mm -hmm. the time I was very interested in, in tech and conversation design. Um, so I started looking for those jobs. Um, and ever since, then I've transitioned a little bit more into uh, maybe something more like public service. I'm very interested in uh, language access. So mm -hmm. at the moment, I've, I've just been looking for a job. I haven't had other than the training module, which I did do a little bit after I graduated, some consulting. Other than that, I haven't had um, a job after I graduated. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you have had this other work that you were doing in television. So can you talk about how that happened and, and what that was about? So I ended up working as, I say my position was a Spanish consultant and coach, Spanish coach mm -hmm. for uh, the TV show Better Call Saul mm -hmm. um, season six. So I worked on the last season. And that job, funny enough, it, it came on the very last year of my uh, degree, mm -hmm. uh, my master's degree. So 
the way I found out about that is that a friend from actually film school, whenever I was doing film, we were friends then. And we both ended up moving to the same city, which is where I am now in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and we were both pursuing film. She was a different area than I than I was, but we stayed very close friends. And one of the things that we connect on is that we both grew up in Mexico in the same state in Chihuahua. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, you know, we always talk Spanish together and English and, you know, we just have a, a friend, friendly relationship. And um, I left film and I still was friends with her and everything. And she knew a little bit of what I was doing. She had actually helped me. She was one of my participants for one of my studies. So she kind of knew a little bit of what I was doing um, in linguistics. And she was offered the job that I ended up doing um, a year prior, I believe for season five. She had been, wor she worked on the show since it started, I believe for the okay. six seasons doing, um, art department and because she spoke Spanish uh, she was offered this job and I remember when she was offered the job um, she had told me uh, I want to do it and I'm excited about doing it but if I ever can't because she was mostly art department she said would you be interested and I told her yeah of course you know I would love to and she said okay and that's how we left it and maybe a year passed or so and in 2021 she called me and she was moving to LA and she told me so I'm going to be leaving that job are you still interested in doing season six they need someone and I can um I can just you know throw your name out there and see what happens and I said yeah yeah of course that would be that would be great I'm a big fan of I was a big fan of Breaking Bad I I hadn't mm -hmm. seen um the yeah, uh, Better Call Saul. Sorry, I don't want to confuse anyone who hasn't seen the show. Better Call Saul is a prequel to Breaking Bad. Right. So um, I was already a fan of the show and everything. So that was very exciting for me. Um, and yeah, she threw my name out there. And then the next week I was contacted uh, for a job interview. And I really couldn't believe it. It was very exciting. Um, and it so happened that the person... There were two people that did the interview, uh, two of the producers, and one of the producers I had met through networking, which I know is very important <laughs> for language. <laughs> I met her during um, a film school uh, independent movie that we were doing that I was volunteering on. And that's actually when my friend Claudia met this producer who was doing art department, art design at the time. Um, so we met her together and it just, you know, years later, maybe 10 years later, she's interviewing me for this job and she already knew that I worked hard, that I knew a little bit about film and now I have all this knowledge about language. So I do feel that more than my resume and everything, it was networking, what yep. got me this job. <laughs> and I was offered the job. I mean, I finished the interview and they said, so do you want it? And I was like, oh my God, yes, of course. <laughs> Wow. Uh, that, that, uh, you know, the value of networking, right? Everybody talks about it and it's just so true and you never know, right? Like someone that you might've met years ago, you run into them in a totally different context. So the, the network, I think um, from what I've heard, I, I, I have not myself worked in entertainment, but from the people I've talked to who do work in entertainment, networking is more important than anything. 
You know, if there's somebody who can vouch for you and say those things that you were just talking about, like, you know, your stuff, you're there on time, um, you get the work done, you're a hard worker, all of those things count more than maybe a list of degrees or even a list of publications. It's, are you going to get this stuff done on time? Because in entertainment, that's what really counts is, you know, there's a show, it has to get filmed and edited and done in a certain amount of time. They don't have time to, to mess around. It's, it's really all about who you know in film, um, which, you know, it's it's bad for people who are hard workers and mm-hmm. can do the job. And so that's why networking, at least in that field, I mean, I think every field, but that's why networking is, is very important. Yeah. And, you know, I, I talked recently to um, David Peterson and Jesse Sams, who are the folks who were, they create languages, they do conlanging. And um, David specifically created the language for Game of Thrones, among other things. And when I was finishing up and asking for, you know, advice about people who might want to do it, very practically, he's like, you know what, it's really hard and there are very, very few jobs. And so even though these types of jobs in entertainment are super cool and really exciting and and use your skills, they are few and far between. It's not like, um, you know, 20 people a year are going to get jobs doing this. And also, if somebody else gets a job doing this, that puts you out of work. And that's probably not a great thing. You know, you'd rather have them call you than call somebody else to do this work. Yes. Yes, I mean, that. I think that could be a completely different podcast of linguists and film. I have so much to say about that. <laughs> and I just, just, if anyone's considering it, I had so much fun doing that job. When it was fun, it was really fun. <laughs> but I, I do want everyone who goes into film to understand that all the jobs that are done in film, you know, acting and the lighting department, the department, all the different departments that are there have been established for decades. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues that I've had, and I'm sure they have as well, the people that you talk to is nobody knows what a language does. So no one, nobody knows what to do with you. They think they, I mean, they know, like for me, it was like, oh, the Spanish, we want it to be accurate to the region. And they don't really understand how to go about it. So mm-hmm. I think advocating for yourself in that position and in others when you realize that's a problem is to be very proactive about this is what I, I can do and also standing up for yourself for things like um, for example I, I, I would get a, a script for a very long scene that was shooting the next day and the scene was very long and at that point I didn't have enough time to do my job well to check mm-hmm. if it was you know, uh, from the region, if it was appropriate to do all the edits that I had to do. So then I had to advocate at some point to say, you know, I need the script maybe a week early and, you know, things like that. So I, going into film, that's one of of the things that I would give advice on that it's not a very well or at all established position. And you kind of have to figure out how you're going to get what you need. Yeah, totally. Um, as you were talking, I, I was also thinking, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, in, in the work that I do in, in marketing and advertising, learning the art of compromise is also really important because there are some times when you won't be able to do what you know is the right thing to do, um, but you can't 
because of practical concerns. So you have to be upfront about that and say, well, this isn't the way I would do it, but we must move forward. And so we need to do this thing in a, a slightly less than perfect way. And you have to be comfortable doing that. Um, I, I think for some people, it's really hard, especially coming out of academia, where you have a lot of time and a lot of resources to do things exactly how you want them to do but in in entertainment and in marketing and advertising it, you just you can't you can't always do things the way you want to do them and you have to be able to live with that mm -hmm. yes and I think at least for me it's one of the things that stimulate me too that I've realized doing these jobs that I do like sometimes that pressure of mm -hmm. you know maybe the writers changed something last minute and there's no other way you are going to get the script with less time so what that's one of that was one of my jobs that i realized that okay we can compromise i can do this maybe the accent or the dialect that you want won't be perfect because of the timeline but i can do this what can i do and the things that i can't do why you can explain why they can't do and you know eventually you kind of work you build your flow and you explain mm -hmm. to people how it needs to work for your your profession yeah wow so fascinating it i think it, it shares a lot with um the folks who do conlanging like david peterson and mark okrand who is the guy who developed klingon for the star trek series it it's all doing a very complicated thing in a very short period of time and just figuring out what is actually going to work to get the job done it's it's a um a high pressure as you say a high pressure situation <laughs> It is. Film is very high pressure, very long hours. <laughs> it's a different field. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that you're going to continue to do more of that kind of work? I, I know that um, Better Call Saul is finished now, right? Yes. The, the last season came out. Um, I'm not pursuing it at the moment. I think it's something that um, I, I have close relationships with a couple of the actors that have expressed that they would like to continue at some point with some of the coaching that I was doing. Um, so there's, you know, people that I would definitely do it for because I had a lot of fun doing it um, with them. But it's honestly going back to film, I, I was more reminded of why I left film. <laughs> Is that what you said? <laughs> um, and, and if I can just take a little bit of a tangent, I... Sure. I think um, I learned something very valuable when I was offered that job because I realized that I really wanted it, but I was also on my last year of grad school and I tried to do it all <laughs> because I, you know, I wanted to be a great student and continue my good relationships with my professors and my research. Uh, but then I was offered this job and, and it came to the point where I, I wasn't doing the the quality of work that I'm used to doing at school and maybe I wasn't performing as well or I realized I couldn't perform as well in my job for the TV show so I just thought you know is it wise to delay my graduation and take a semester mm -hmm. off uh, while they need me a lot right now because the show shot for a whole year um, and they did tell me that the first half of the year was very, was going to be very Spanish heavy. So they were going to need me a lot during that. 
So then I thought maybe, you know, maybe I can just drop a semester and uh, take the time to just really do this, which is going to give me an opportunity outside of whenever I graduate. I feel like it's a good trade-off. Um, and it was very difficult for me because I wanted to graduate early. I wanted to get a job, you know, right away. But I really did realize that for my <laughs> for my sanity and <laughs> for um, my performance at school and everything, it was better to um, just rest that semester and, and dedicate fully to the job. So mm -hmm. that is something that I had never heard anyone um, talk about. And I and I do think if anyone is you know, lucky enough, they're networking, they're networking, and they get a job opportunity, and they realize that it's something that it's worth uh, giving your full self to, and you maybe need to take a semester off, and you can afford to do so. I think it's a wise thing. I think it's, you know, prioritizing is very important. Um, so I just wanted to put it out there that I did mm -hmm. end up delaying a semester, and it was fine. Nothing bad happened. I, you know, I have one more great thing to put on my resume, and I think it was a good a good decision. Yeah, that that's a great point. I think um, the pressure within the department is to just get through it and do it as straightforwardly and as quickly as you can, but your real life doesn't always allow for that. And uh, we've talked with other people who have also emphasized that having a master's is fine and you don't have to get that PhD, but you know what? You can go back and get a PhD if you want to. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. It's not as if this is your one chance in life to finish your PhD. You can go back and maybe your employer will even pay for it because that's happened for people. That's a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, <laughs> having someone else pay for it. Um, so let, let's talk about what you're doing now. So you're, you're looking for work. You talked about things like language access. Um, what would you like to be doing? Like, what is the job that you would really like to have now? God, <laughs> what a question. <laughs> <laughs> I would really love to problem solve um, for someone. Uh, for a company, for a you know organization, I'm I'm just very passionate about um, about equity. I really want to push you know um, gender equity and uh, diversity, inclusion, all of that. Um, but I would really love to focus on language. I think a, a dream job would be something that I'm working to problem solve, and it's having an effect on populations that have a um, linguistic or cultural barrier. I think that's something that would be so satisfying and something I'm just very passionate about. Yeah, yeah so language access, I think it's, it's something that has a lot um, of those boxes that fills a lot of those things. Yeah, uh, and I think those types of jobs are becoming more viable as career options like maybe 10 years ago you would not have seen those things but as people become more aware of how language plays into things like DEI and bias they're understanding that actually there are people called linguists who are experts and can help them with this and it there are more jobs now in in those areas than I think there ever used to be and it seems like it will only increase over time that that's what I'm seeing anyway yes it I am seeing a lot of uh, DEI jobs right now, and I keep applying to them. But you know, one of the problems that I'm encountering, and I think this is for 
all the paths that I've taken, like the tech and um, just DEI, different different things that I've been interested in, I'm always short one very important skill. <laughs> mm. So a lot of um, language access, um, if it's for the government, I need experience in policy, and I have zero experience on that. Uh, when I was, you know, pursuing uh, tech, uh, of course, Python, you know, depending on how techie you want to get, um, skills that I just didn't have time to work in, in my grad, because as you know, now I, you know, I had like three jobs going on along with my degree. So really, um, uh, DEI seems to be more that people trust someone who has an HR degree or a business mm -hmm. degree. Mm -hmm. um so you know I'm, I'm stuck in this in this hole of uh do i do i take more classes do i take what i can get right now but then um nothing's working so uh, i don't know it's just i'm trying to find my way that's where i am right now yeah so you're you're doing all the things i'm, I'm sure we talked about in lcl so you know working on your resume and networking and and all of those things um mm -hmm. is there one I mean, I think we've talked a little bit about networking besides the obvious part about reaching out to people. Is there one thing in particular that you're spending more time doing as you're looking for work? One of the things that I spend the most time doing is um, crafting my resume. Mm -hmm. I I think it's just maybe I spend too many hours on it. And I think one of the problems which I like to think it's a strength as well, is that my background is so diverse. So whenever I find one job, I think, oh, I can highlight these other things that I've done. So I end up almost, you know, writing it from scratch. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I spend a lot of time uh, crafting that, but you know, I, I still feel like it's a, it's a strength that I have so many backgrounds. Um, but it's, yeah, a lot of the time that I spend in this job hunting is definitely uh, crafting my resume and, and cover letters. Yeah, it seems like um, for people like you who have a really diverse background, it, it takes a while to find that place. But eventually when you do, it kind of all comes together into like you would be the only person qualified for whatever the job is going to be and you know you'll find it eventually but it can be hard and I think it gets back to what we were talking about earlier that people don't really know what a linguist is or what a linguist does so there's that burden on top of it to explain like no it doesn't just mean that I'm multilingual like it means that I have a very specific skill set that is going to be perfect for this but you have to explain that to everybody. Mm -hmm. And you don't have the opportunity to explain it when you're not getting a job interview, which is right. very difficult and soul crushing, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's hard out there. And I know at the moment, um, with there's been layoffs, as everybody knows, throughout the tech industry, but other industries as well. A lot of people are, are looking for jobs right now. But it seems like, in general, it's better for linguists now than, again, say, 10 or 15 years ago, when people really did not know what linguists did at all. So it's incremental change. It is. And, and I really want to highlight all the skills that I, I know you advocate for, like LinkedIn. Um, and other than networking, I think... Um, I, I just try to think if if I were to go back, you know, to when I was in school, like what could I have done differently to maybe not 
have this difficult time that I'm having right now finding a job. And I think just looking more seriously at job descriptions for jobs that I was interested in doing. And at the time I was doing that and I was looking at keywords. So, you know, kind of how to frame my own experiences and my own skills in their language um, that they're using. But I think more than that, something that I just didn't pay attention to is what is the common thing that they're all asking for that I don't have? Because, you know, maybe policy, maybe I, I could have tried to talk to someone or try to see how I could frame a project that, you know, um, talked about that or like researched a little bit about that or something. So I think other than networking, LinkedIn and other um, websites like that, um, or social media, that's how they can be helpful too. It's, are you interested in a job that most of the time requires um, budgeting or, you know, a, a business degree? Like, how can you how can you get there? Because um, I can explain why I'm valuable as a linguist, but you know, if, if they really said on, you need HR experience, I probably can't do that right now, but I could have maybe done something with an elective or something in the past. Right, right, exactly. Uh, that's so uh, coincidental that you mentioned it. The last interview that, that we had, um, was with Nicole Ryback, and we spent some time talking about how great it would be if there were courses that you could take, electives, that are kind of, you know, business courses for non-business majors, where you could at least get some of the basics and explore concepts so that when you go into different areas of business, you know something rather than knowing nothing. Mm -hmm. That was certainly my experience when I left academia. I didn't know anything and I had to learn it all from <laughs> scratch. And I wish that there had been a class that just kind of introduced you to all these basic concepts so that at least you knew what you were dealing with and people could see that, that you had some knowledge rather than just being, you know, a blank slate about those things. Yes. Yeah, I think that that would be great. I know that would have helped me for sure. Yeah, a, a lot of people, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Well, that that's terrific advice. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, as we're kind of wrapping things up, are, are there other um, things that maybe you would like to pass along to folks who are listening or things that you, you think you should have done differently? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely if you know, and that is a problem, if you don't know what job you want, there's nothing you can do at the time, you know, to start preparing for that job because you just don't don't know. But I think it can only help you if you try to do linguistics and pick up other valuable skills. Um, I think this is stressed enough in our field. Uh, it will never hurt you to learn Python if that's something that interests you. Um, it will never hurt you to learn um, some administrative stuff or, or business, like you were saying. So mm -hmm. um, I think I definitely, um, I just didn't have the time. So I don't really regret what I did, but I really wish I would have had the time to upscale in, in other areas that I just at the time didn't know I was going to need. Um, yep. So if, if someone that's, you know, in school right now can start figuring that out and just, you know, picking up more skills, even something that I think I could have done different. Um, I was part of, of um, you know, linguistic associations and in, in my department in a position that I just never 
thought was interesting at all was um, being the treasurer for anything. Mm -hmm. And I am confident now that that could have been some budgeting experience that I could have put in my resume. Mm -hmm. um, so little things like that. Like I think that position maybe wouldn't have taken that much time and it would have made a huge difference now. So, you know, yeah. just things like that. Try to think um, something that you kind of like and even if you don't know if you're going to love it uh, try to get gain that skill is never going to hurt yeah that that's great advice i i heartily second that i wish i had done that when i was in school i, I wish somebody had told me that because that would have been really <laughs> really valuable and there are things that you can go back and pick up later on there are so many free courses or very low cost courses that are offered online but you know if you can do it while you're in school and it's part of your curricula it, it's it's much better to do it that way. I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Um, so I, I think, we, I mean, we've talked about all of this. I would love to catch up with you at some point once you've landed a job, which of course you will. We all know that that will happen and um, talk about how that process worked and then what your, your career is going to look like in, I don't know, six months or something. Thank you. I would love to keep you posted on that. I, I promise I will. And we'd love to talk to you again about it. <laughs> once I'm on the other side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this has been a great conversation. It's such an interesting field and, and you've done so many really, really cool things with your linguistics background. So thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much, Laurel. It was really fun. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.